Hi everyone, my name is Erin Katie Meehan. I'm the Senior Marketing Manager for Trade Books here at Oxford University Press, and I'll be hosting this episode of the Oxford Comment. Today we're talking about World Press Freedom Day. Uh, World Press Freedom Day um, was announced by the UN General Assembly in 1993. Since then, we take time on May 3rd of each year to celebrate the principles of press freedom, defend the media from attacks on their independence, and pay tribute to journalists who have lost their lives in the line of duty. This year's theme is keeping power in check, media justice and the rule of the law. It draws attention to the role of the law within journalism. To spread awareness of this year's World Press Freedom Day, we sat down with OUP President Nico Fund, as well as authors Nadine Strassen and Tom Nichols to discuss World Press Freedom. Nico and I talked about World Press Freedom and how publishing um, can impact it, the role of publishing and the press, um, and more. It was a really insightful conversation, especially as someone who works in publishing, to hear Nico's expertise, who's been in the industry for 30 years. Uh, so let's hear more from him. Well, I think without freedom of the press, you actually don't have publishing. I think in order to be a publisher, be the kind of publisher Oxford University Press is, be the kind of publisher that University Presses aspire to be, uh, which are publishers of record that rely on quality to do their uh, fulfill their mission uh, without freedom of the press, which I think is inherent to having our work covered, uh, promoted, disseminated, you really can't effectively publish. So whether that's in the form of book reviews or in the form of author interviews or in the form of authors themselves uh, working hand in hand with publishers to try to promote the message of their books, I think you actually can't do any of that without having a, uh, an unfettered press. If there were to come a time in which the free press becomes so restricted that book coverage becomes obsolete, how can publishers like Oxford get important works out to readers? Well, no, I mean, I think it's actually, it's an interesting dilemma, right? It goes to the very heart of a lot of the things that have been roiling uh, the West over the course of the last two years, this notion of how elections can be influenced. Uh, I think that um, uh, anticipate one's ability to either effectively reach uh, even more people, or whether that uh, there'll be some technologically enforced means of actually restricting that ability. So it's, I, I feel as if publishing is one of these industries where we're, we're very much prone towards extremes, so that we tend to say, you know, gravitate towards this notion that either print is dead and e-books are going to take over, or suddenly e-books are a flash in the pan and uh, are actually not going to be um, the future. And years ago, I got, uh, I, I had these t-shirts made for all of our uh, editorial staff that just said, question monocausality, because the idea was, you know, there are many reasons for things. Uh, almost never is there a single reason. And I think that it, it's difficult to anticipate. I think it's a very unsteady moment right now. Uh, and I do think that as a university press and given our uh, umbilical connection with, with Oxford, uh, we uh, will adhere to those principles uh, as we try to make our way through this. But I think that um, it's, uh, it's an unusual moment uh, because, to your question, uh, there are certainly ways in which our content can be distorted, can be repressed, uh, at the same time that I think we are we have the tools to make our content more widely available uh, in a way that we've never had them before. And I think that if we feel that uh, we've been in this era that has been defined by accusations in all directions of fake news uh, now, I think that the given the power of the visual image, I think that will be 
uh, an ever greater challenge to, to make sure that our, our vetted and you know, uh, non-ideological content is uh, making its way through the culture. I'm hard-pressed to think of a time in the 30 years that I've been publishing where there's been a greater need for the kind of organization that university presses are. When I was uh, exchanging emails the other day with Siva Vaidyanathan, uh, author of a forthcoming book on Facebook, he said something to the effect of, you know, the problem with, with Facebook is Facebook, uh, uh, it's very difficult to imagine how we make our way through this period. And I jokingly replied, uh, peer review, exclamation point. And, uh, and we had an exchange about, you know, that was obviously a bit of a joke, but it wasn't entirely a joke, because I do think that what you need is you need methodologies to try to ascertain the objective truth, right? That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, so you mentioned university presses, and obviously one of Oxford's mission um, is education and disseminating that uh, information out as widely as possible. How, where do you see the press's stance in that and how we can be a force of, you know, good, balanced good, really? Yeah, I think I would just go back to this question of the, of the core principles that we, that we adhere to. I think that, and this is where World Press Freedom Day, uh, I think, overlaps squarely with our mission, which is uh, there are certain approaches that journalists adhere to. Uh, we, we had, for instance, a, uh, a discussion at the editorial board meeting the other day about a book um, that referenced uh, the use of cell phones uh, to rec uh, as, as a form of journalism. And I bridled that a little bit because the act of recording something on a cell phone does not entirely, I think, to describe that as journalism is a slight overreach, right? Journalism, I think, to me, uh, involves a certain degree of, uh, maybe not editorial, but it, it involves more than simply the act of recording something. I think there is a, uh, a decision about how what you're recording, how you're framing it, uh, maybe the commentary that you apply to it. And I think that journalists, like academic publishers, uh, you know, in journalism you have the, uh, the two sources rule, uh, we have the two positive review rule, uh, these things are in many ways obviously quite different, but there is this notion that you uh, have to adhere to this method in order to actually get something published, and that it gets something published under uh, the imprint or the banner, let's say, of a, a newspaper or a magazine. Uh, it, it's actually, I remember years ago, Nadine Strassen, who's just uh, published a book with us uh, on uh, hate speech and censorship, uh, she was asked during a panel whether or not it was a source of embarrassment to her and to the ACLU, of which she was at that point the... Uh, uh, the executive director, uh, whether it was a source of embarrassment that the, the national chapter of the ACLU found itself on uh, the opposite side of a lawsuit as a local chapter. And she said, no, quite the opposite. I think that's a sign of the organization's strength. And I think that ability to constantly be reflecting back and evaluating how you are doing your work and uh, doing that through a prism of, of this method, uh, because sometimes journalists get it wrong, sometimes publishers get it wrong. And, uh, but I think the attempt to, to use this methodology to come to a, uh, an objective representation, I think, is the, is the governing standard in both cases. And I think that that's something that will, that, that, that's been unwavering. We sat down with Nadine Strassen, author of Hate, which releases this month. And she talks about the role of algorithms, free speech, and the press in social media. It's a really interesting take, and I think one that we're currently struggling with today. Let's hear more from Nadine. My name is Nadine Strassen. I am a professor of constitutional law at New York Law School in New York City, not surprisingly. And I am the immediate past national president of the 
American Civil Liberties Union. I continue to do a lot of civil liberties advocacy, including about the topic of my new book uh, published by Oxford University Press on May 1st of this year called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Freedom of expression, as stated in Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, includes that individuals have the freedom to hold opinions without interference. Consumers are subject to evolving social media algorithms that determine what they are exposed to, which has led to a culture of confirmation bias. Could these algorithms be considered an interference, or would trying to prevent confirmation bias be considered a violation of interfering with opinions? This is a very complicated and interesting question about the role of algorithms in determining what information is fed to us on various online platforms, including social media. And first and foremost, I have to stress, and I'm going to be paraphrasing somebody else, algorithms are human too. In other words, they are tools that are used by human beings and companies. And like all communications tools, they can be used in good ways and they can be used in bad ways. And we as media consumers, including social media consumers, have a responsibility to be literate and savvy so that we can make our own informed decisions about the extent to which we are going to seek out, rely on, trust, or not certain information that is being given to us. And on the, uh, for their part, the social media companies and other online uh, intermediaries that are using algorithms have a responsibility to us to be maximally transparent about what they are doing so that we can make informed choices as we exercise our right to free expression. And by the way, the right to free expression, of course, includes the right to receive information as well as to convey it. The question of regulation has been raised in the era of fake news. How would government regulation of social media outlets affect press freedom? Social media outlets are now the major way that people, not only in the United States, but all over the world, engage in communication, including receiving information. Even the United States Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision that it issued last summer, expressly recognized this and saying that given the importance of social media as a platform for exchanging information and ideas, it is vital in our democracy where we, the people, are the governors, but we can't be effective governors unless we have access to information about public issues and can freely discuss public issues, that even our democracy itself in addition to individual liberty, is undermined if people have only restricted access to social media. And so the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously struck down a state law that denied free access to social media through regulation uh, to particular individuals. So there are our freedom of speech for all practical purposes really does depend on free and equal access to social media. 
Nadine, what do you think the future of press freedom holds? In the last century, a very important early scholar and advocate of freedom of speech named Zechariah Chafee uh, answered the question about the future of freedom of speech, which still holds true now uh, in the next century. He said, in the long run, people will have as much freedom of speech and of the press as they want. And I think that really continues to be true. As the Constitution's opening words say, again, we the people are the governors, we have ultimate power. And if we demand of our elected officials that they protect our freedom of speech, if we protest and um, and diselect them, if they uh, abuse our freedom of speech and of the press, then those freedoms will prevail. But if we are apathetic, if we don't exercise and remain vigilant in demanding respect for freedom of speech and press, it will atrophy. Nadine brings up a really great point and one that we should be mindful of, one that the free press needs protection and citizens can help them provide that protection by speaking on their behalf, but also that citizens have a duty to advocate for their own um, protection as well. This theme, the press and our relation to it, is reiterated in our conversation with Tom and Nico as well. How personally now, this this is sort of, uh, I think, less about the press, but what what's your recommendation for just readers of the press or, or general everyday people to um, find objective information? I think it is one of the most important issues of our day is uh, the how you gauge what is true and factual and uh, accurate and what is willfully distorted or uh, in some way ideologically leading. And I think that, you know, the answer to that, in some ways I would parrot uh, Tom Nichols, the author of our book, uh, The Death of Expertise, where, uh, you know, he points out that there are, you know, there are cultural signifiers, there are, uh, there are authority signifiers, uh, and the landscape is littered with them. We also sat down with author Tom Nichols, and if you're not following Tom on Twitter, you're missing quite a show. Let's hear more from Tom. I'm Tom Nichols. I'm a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College and the author of The Death of Expertise. How has modern journalism adapted to the information age? I think one thing you could argue, modern journalism hasn't adapted to the information age, that um, we still have legacy media that are trying to write stories the way that newspapers once uh, printed them. And then we have a group of people who've kind of jumped over all of that into the high content, high speed, uh, highly visual, short attention span version of media. And we sort of missed the step in between where we could make something in between the kind of old style long read newspaper and the kind of quick poppy um, listicle uh, approach to journalism. So I, I think in some ways that the consumer uh, and the consumer's endless demand for quick and interesting has gotten ahead of uh, the journalistic field itself. 
What are the dangers facing journalism in an era of anti-intellectualism? Journalists are considered part of an intellectual elite that are not uh, trustworthy. That in an era where people innately distrust with education or who present themselves as authoritative, journalists who put themselves forward as objective and telling the truth are instantly distrusted in an endless game of gotcha because they're caught between partisan tribes who want to control the information stream. Now, sometimes journalists themselves uh, walk right into this because they make mistakes or they do reveal a partisan tilt. Um, but in the end, um, the anti-intellectualism that is affecting everything from doctors to scientists, to teachers to diplomats is spreading over journalists as well, kind of like a, um, you know, a large just bucket of scorn that's hitting everybody who presents themselves as presenting anything like facts. Social media really drives a lot of this anti-intellectualism because it creates the illusion that the entire world can kind of crowdsource and fact check reality, when in fact, most people simply aren't equipped to do that. And the social media makes everyone look like peers. Uh, so if you're talking to a diplomat who has 20 years of experience negotiating treaties or a doctor who has you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years uh, experience dealing with vaccines or epidemics, uh, a journalist who has been covering Capitol Hill for, for 10 or 12 years, they're all on an equal footing with someone who just popped open their laptop or happened to look at their phone and is now challenging them. Uh, and the problem is, of course, that, it, that to the the outside reader, that all looks the same. It, it looks like just a big, ugly scrum of competing facts and ideas. But in fact, um, very few of the people uh, who wander into social media to take on experts actually know what they're talking about. And it's deeply destructive. So Tom, we've been asking this question to Nadine and to Nico and even to ourselves, but can you tell us uh, what does the future of press freedom hold? Press freedom is under attack, not just from government, but under attack from the people that the press is serving, the public, uh, because the public has become so tribal that they want the press to take sides, that they don't trust the media and they want to suppress media that doesn't agree with them unless it serves their particular tribal or partisan point. And so this is a time more than any where uh, journalists really have to stand fast and you know, shout back in, uh, into the blizzard to say, you know, there are things that are true, that are things that are false. We do our best to get this right. We hold ourselves accountable, uh, but you know, we can't um, we we can't just become uh, participants in in this big tribal uh, fight. And I think that's a real threat to press freedom because it's bad enough when governments don't like bad news, but when the public doesn't like bad news and they wanna start shutting down the media, uh, then you have a real danger to, to the future of press freedom, it, not just in the United States, but in every democracy. Tom speaks about an important reminder for us, the importance of experts in the press, the rise of anti-intellectualism through social media that affects our trust in that press, and the repercussions on the public's attack on it, which could potentially mean the end of free press. Nico and I talk about that a little bit more here, and it's an interesting conversation to have and one I think that will not go away anytime soon.
that. And I think it's the responsibility of citizens increasingly to, uh, to educate themselves accordingly and not to be duped and suckered by uh, people who actually are trying to lead them by the nose in a, in a certain direction. I think if there's one thing about the last uh, couple years that strikes me as being a, a, a good, uh, it is that uh, I think all of us have become uh, more conscious of the way in which uh, many organizations that we perhaps once thought of as uh, um, being uh, transparently objective, uh, that there is an ideology at work behind them. And I think being conscious of that ideology uh, and how that ideology influences the depiction. Uh, I'm reminded, for instance, of when uh, Barack Obama was president, there was a juxtaposition of the way in which photographs of him appeared in the Wall Street Journal and photographs appeared of him in the New York Times. And in the latter, there were more often friendly and smiling, and sometimes in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, they would catch him in mid-blink, um, looking decidedly weird. And uh, so I think that uh, those sorts of things, it requires some time, though. Um, right. But I do think that it's, uh, it's really an important uh, aspect of being a conscious citizen. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, because I think that since working at Oxford and participating in our editorial board process, um, it's actually made me a better consumer of the yeah. news because I sit there and we talk about, you know, we have a ton of technology books coming up um, because it's such an important topic. Are we being balanced enough here? Are we providing our readers with both sides of the argument? And yeah. even if I disagree, um, I was one of those people who read, who came to Nadine Strassen's book, Hate, mm. um, with a very specific... Um, predisposed notion of what I believe yeah. and came out of her book completely changing my mind about how I view the First Amendment and why yeah. um, censorship can actually be really really bad in certain situations so I think that peer review and ensuring we're we're taking a really rigorous process to the truth and making yeah. sure we're providing balanced I hadn't thought about it quite in those terms, but it's exactly right, which is that that editorial board meeting, exactly the kind of marketplace of ideas that I was just making reference to, where you have people, you know, from different perspectives, experiences, again, subjectivities coming together and kind of doing friendly battle uh, and trying to represent their positions. And uh, it is one of the things I think that is... Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's an interesting aspect of that meeting where you want to actually have conflict and you want to have disagreement. Uh, you want it to be civil, right? You want it to be unfailingly civil. Uh, but uh, it's actually, if everybody is getting along and agreeing, uh, that's not necessarily the right uh, manifestation of that meeting. And I think that um, it's, it's, it's kind of microcosm of some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, and, um, and it can change according to a single person, right? The dynamic right. Can, be, can be heavily influenced. And so I think that uh, to the point about the larger uh, media uh, universe, I think that uh, how those things get debated and how, how the methodology of that meeting is actually brought to bear on each project right. is... Uh, and, and I think to your point about uh, having your opinions change, that's kind of the point, right? Like that is... Uh, uh, the notion that we would have these, uh, that, that, that having a kind of calcified or rigid opinion and sticking to it regardless of uh, anything, that's not a sign of strength, right? That's a sign of intellectual yeah. calcification. Yeah, it's a good reminder that um, the press or, and freedom of the press isn't just an obligation, let's say, of the government or whoever, however you believe that obligation should yeah. sit. Um, it's really, I think, in publishing an obligation of those who work um, in publishing to ensure that we're providing fair and ba balanced views yeah. so that other people can make a better informed decision. Exactly. In our conversations with Nico, Nadine, and Tom, we touched a lot on the theme of this year's World Press Freedom Day, keeping power in check, media justice, and the rule of law. 
we've been reminded that protecting and advocating on behalf of the press is important. It's equally important to protect and advocate on behalf of ourselves and fellow citizens. That the changing landscape of social media and all that that means affects not only the press, um, their ability to deliver the news and our ability to ingest it. That we need to identify experts correctly and then trust in their expertise. We need to be educated about free speech and the repercussions of limiting it for the press and potentially the downstream repercussions of that limitation on ourselves. I think we all agree that the value of debate, healthy civil debate, is incredibly important in today's climate and it's something that we rely upon the press to deliver to us and to help us educate ourselves when we then go on to debate important topics with one another. Again, we wanna thank Nico and Nadine and Tom for taking the time to chat about this important topic with us. Um, we'll thank our crew here at Oxford for helping putting this together. You can purchase uh, or pick up Nadine and Tom's books at your local bookstore um, and be sure to follow OUP Academic on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening to the Oxford Comment.